Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride was written by William Goldman and was published in 1973. And the film adaptation, directed by Rob Reiner, came out in 1987. And we're finally doing The Princess Bride. (laughs) It's been on our short list for a long time. It's such a beloved movie. And really, I was really excited to read this because I had no idea what the tone of the book would be like. Uh Uh-huh. Because the movie is so funny and kind of odd. Campy. Yeah, campy. And I was like... They, I could easily imagine them taking a very conventional fairy tale type story and making it that way. <laughs> or I was like, maybe that's already baked into the story. So it was really interesting to kind of like get to explore that. Yes, this is a patron requested episode. Our patron Robert asked us to do it. And we were like, of course, we've been wanting to do it for so long, but never had a good enough reason to select it for an episode. So here we are. Yeah. Like I said, I wasn't sure what to expect out of this book. And right out of the gate, it is so interesting and not at all what I was expecting. Well, William Goldman is known for doing a lot of um, like movie adaptations or not movie adaptations. Screenplays. Screenplays. Yeah. And he actually worked with Rob Reiner on uh, Misery. Also, he really? did the screenplay oh, for I, Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. And he also did the adaptation, like the screenplay for this movie. Yeah. And he wrote uh, the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which it's so funny because the book begins talking about like my past, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're immediately in this narrator's perspective. And he's like, when I was a kid, they'd say, Billy, do this or Billy, do that, you know. And then he talked about being an adult and being a writer and writing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I was like, oh, this is like the author, like yeah. the actual author. And it it creates this really interesting setup where you're immediately questioning reality. Yes. Because he talks about like, oh, my wife is uh, a psychologist and she's very, uh, she doesn't have a sense of humor. She's very cold in a way. <laughs> and my son, he talks about how fat his son is. So much. A lot. And I was like, oh, my God, I hope this man does not have an actual son in real life. No, he has he two doesn't. daughters. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, this is um, this is a very stylized version of reality, right? Yes. Because William Goldman is writing as himself, but he's creating this fictional narrative it's called a frame narrative to write the story and to tell the tale of how this story came to be. So like you said, we have a wife that's not the the profession or the name that his real wife actually has. He has a fat son when in reality he has two daughters, right? So just making up this whole story and in this frame fictional story, when he was a kid, his father read to him the Princess Bride. And it was a book that was published um, and the author was S. Morgenstern and his father read it to him when he was sick and he loved the story. So William Goldman now in this fictional version is like, oh, I want my son to read it. I want to share that with him. And so he had only experienced it from his father reading it to him. So he gave the book to his son and his son was like, eh, I didn't like it. I couldn't get past chapter two. And his dad is like, what? And he picks it up and begins reading it. And he realizes, oh, my God, my dad was like self-editing as he read it to me. 
And there's huge parts of this book he skipped. <laughs> and like chapter two is all about like the history of these countries and it's boring and bad. And like and he's kind of immediately like, can I write? Can I do my own abridging of this book? And he kind of talks about like putting it on his shoulders and like getting permission from S. Morgan Stern's estate to like do this abridged version of the novel and that what you are about to read is the abridged version of this novel. Yeah, the the title and the way it was published is The Princess Bride, S. Morgan Stern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, The Good Parts Version, abridged by <laughs> William Goldman. And that was how the book was published. Yeah. Kind of leaning into this fake reality of it being an abridged story of a, a deeper, an original story. Yes. And it's such an <laughs> interesting, like you said, framing narrative that like has elements of truth to it and reality, but also huge fictional elements added. It gets to the point where you're like, <laughs> you, you start looking things up because you're like, is this re is some of this real? Like, I don't know where reality <laughs> ends and fiction begins with this story and then like there's points in the book where like the author s morgan stern is like interrupting the story to say something and then william goldman william goldman is like interrupting that to give his own thoughts on something and it's just <laughs> like this really interesting meta analysis of the story yeah it's super super meta basically don't trust anything you read in this story <laughs> none of it is real uh just Assume that this author, William Goldman, is having just the best time writing this, right? <laughs> and just fucking He's with everybody. He's just having so much fun. <laughs> it's the best time for him. Uh, and none of it's true. No. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's fun for the reader, too. Oh, it is. And the movie obviously takes inspiration from this. It, it takes a much simpler approach to it. Uh, that being just there is a child in bed, sick, and his grandfather shows up to read this story to him. Yeah, very much kind of going back to what William Goldman said his father did for him, right? Reading this book to him when he was sick. So kind of being inspired by that original story in the frame narrative of the book and taking that to the movie. And like you said, it's a lot simpler than having this whole convoluted backstory <laughs> about how this book came to yeah. be. We just get to see those meta elements in the movie through the lens of like the grandpa and the grandson and their kind of interruptions and how the story unfolds in that way. And yeah, watching the grandson's uh, enjoyment of the book transform over the course of the film and Fred Savage, who plays the child, and Peter Falk, who plays the grandfather, just have, like, a great dynamic that's so funny. They do. The grandfather's kind of dry sense of humor, and, like, <laughs> it's, it's a really good dynamic that kind of keeps popping up when you forget about it. Yeah, and I think it does give context to, like you said, the story that is very, like, classic and simple in a lot of ways, but with so much adventure and set pieces, right? It really does feel like a bedtime story. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's points where in the film we were like, okay, this is very clearly a set or something like that, but that almost, like, adds to the idea of this being, like, a child's fantasy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, let's get into the actual... The, the center, the nougaty center <laughs> of this story, the actual story of the Princess Bride. And we're introduced to Buttercup. She is just a commoner, a 17-year-old girl who lives on a farm with her parents. And there is a 
handsome, rugged farm boy yes. who she loves bossing around. Yes. And they have banter, mostly on her side, because he doesn't really say anything other than <laughs> as you wish. But they eventually realize that they love each other. In the movie, it kind of like cuts straight to them realizing that they're in love. The book takes its time. It uh, does. Maybe a little too long, giving us some backstory on what's going on in these fictional countries of Lauren and Gilder. And then Buttercup and Wesley realizing their feelings for each other. I, I will say, though, the realization of Buttercup, she sees like a, a high class woman being like really in to Wesley and being like jealous of that. And then like realizing that she loves Wesley. And then she has this like two page long confession of love <laughs> to Wesley. That's like super dramatic. And then he just like shuts the door on her and she like is crying and then just crushed. And like the, <laughs> the ups and downs of like this teenage love is yeah. so funny and so well written. Eventually they do confess their mutual love for each yes. other. Right. And they're very happy, but Wesley wants to go and make his fortune so that they can eventually marry. Yeah. Speaking of humor as well, the book has this thing throughout the beginning that is so funny where the author in almost an attempt like on the surface to like clarify like the time period that the book <laughs> takes place, but also it just being more confusing and funny than anything. It, he'll keep saying like something will come up, right? Like uh, glamour, the idea of glamour. Yeah. And he'll write, like, in parentheses, this was actually before the creation of glamour. But <laughs> women like this helped create it, right? Yeah. Or at one point, they'd talk about stew. And he said, this was after stew. Ever since people uh, started eating food, they threw it together in a big pot and called it stew. <laughs> and then later, taxes are mentioned. And he was he was like, uh, this was after taxes. Uh, taxes came before even stew, actually. <laughs> like, he just keeps going with it, and it just keeps popping up, and it's just so funny. Very, very, very funny. There are also chunks, too, that are, like, cut out. And this happens when, um, you know, Wesley goes off to make his fortune, and he ends up, we find out that he his ship was attacked by pirates. And not just any pirate, the Dread Pirate Roberts, who never leaves anyone alive after he takes a ship. So, you know, he dies. Buttercup hears this and decides that, you know, she'll never love again. But, you know, we find out that sometime later she gets engaged to the prince of this country, Prince Humperdinck. Yeah. And the book kind of cuts to this point quickly, too. Like, we read that, like... Uh, Buttercup after Wesley died, her grief cr finally made her the most beautiful woman in all the land, in all the world. And uh, the prince finds her and basically threatens her into marriage. Yeah. And the book then, we get one of these inserts where the author says, like, uh, there were, like, 60 pages here of Buttercup going to, like... Court lessons? Royalty school <laughs> and learning how to become royalty and in order for the prince to marry her, he made her the princess of like a nearby land that was kind of nothing as like a title. And he was like, it's all really boring. And it was actually supposed to be satirical of Italy or like the location that the author lived in at the time. And supposedly scholars say it's like scathing satire. <laughs> but as an actual story, it's not very fun and readable. So I just cut it all out. So like you get this like two, two, three page uh, explanation explanation yeah as to why he cut out 
a bunch of pages from the story. Yeah, and I, I think the movie doesn't quite explain why Buttercup is suddenly a princess. <laughs> no, no, um, it never does. Especially because she do, she's not meant to have ever have married the prince, right? Like, that doesn't happen. So Yeah, it's, like, mentioned, like, oh, the it's the... What, what do they say? Like, the prince has the right to choose his bride in the yeah. land. Yeah. And it's like, okay, but she's still not a princess, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the movie's just like, yeah, let's just keep going. Keep like, going, keep yeah. Going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Buttercup is going to marry uh, Prince Humperdinck. She does not love him, though, and she has told him... I don't love you like I loved once and I'll never love again. And the prince is kind of like, I don't really care. Like, let's just get married. (laughs) So they're like, okay. And then one day the uh, princess, Princess Buttercup is out riding her horse in the fields. And she comes across three men who claim to be circus folk who immediately kidnap her. Yes. And now she's tied up and being uh, taken to what seems like the country of Gilder. Uh, Although you find out it's actually a scheme and they're going to kill her at the border and they're intentionally making it look like she was kidnapped by the country. Yes, to start a war. To start a war. Here we have three of the most memorable memorable characters in this story. We have Fazzini, played by Wallace Shawn, and we have... Uh, Inigo, who's played by Mindy uh, Patinkin. 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 Mandy Patinkin. Mandy. <laughs> you keep <laughs> saying Mindy. I don't know why. <laughs> why? This is usually my job, Adina, <laughs> is to fuck up names. <laughs> and finally, uh, Andre the Giant as Fezzik. Yes. And these three <laughs> are just such a classic like trio. You have Andre the Giant, who his very, very distinctive, thick French accent and just like goofiness and like the rhyming he does with Inigo. Uh, Mandy Patinkin is is really great as Inigo. And then Vicini is just so funny. He's hilarious. He's just screaming at all times at top volume <laughs> yes. as the other two men and bullying them and it's amazing i love it so much i love too just the height contrast between him and andre the giant like, yes it's very comical it is and like all three of them together are just such a good <laughs> even just visually such a good trio right yeah i think there's a scene where they're yeah, when she first sees them, when they're standing next to oh, each yeah, other, they're... and it's like a sloped, <laughs> like obviously with um, Wallace Shawn at the bottom and uh, Andre the Giant at the top, yes. but so funny. <laughs> <laughs> they have her on a boat, and she does make an escape attempt. Uh, in the book, it is into shark-infested waters, and Vizzini actually like starts cutting himself and like filling a cup of blood to like attract the sharks to threaten her. <laughs> it's very over the top, which ends up getting her back to the boat. And in the film, it is shrieking eels. Yes. <laughs> which is done really well. Like the the eel puppets are great. And we get a great insert here with the grandfather cutting back to him reading this story. And he tells his grandson she does not get eaten by the eels at this time. He's like, what? He's like, you looked concerned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just want to re- reassure you. This is, <laughs> yeah, it's same thing in the book. There's like a cutaway where he's like, she does not get eaten by the sharks at this time. Yeah, yeah. Which it, is really funny. It'll cut back to sometimes the author remembering his dad reading the book to him. Yeah. I just love in the movie, though, 
where the grandpa starts reading it again, but he starts like farther back than where they left off. And it's just the grandpa saying the words and you can see the actors mouthing it and it's the grandpa's voice instead. <laughs> yeah. And then the grandson being like, grandpa, you already read that part. And he's like, uh, and then you're kind of like fast forwarding. There's kind of this awkward <laughs> moment of the grandpa catching his catching up back to his place and like at one point Robin Wright is just treading in the water looking yeah. around and I'm I'm really curious if that was like originally planned or if they kind of like figured that out in the edit that it would look really funny to like do that you know if they had that footage or not but that is such a funny moment I love that part so much I also want to mention the the scene where they're rhyming together when they first get on the boat yeah and I really love it of course the iconic rhyme uh which is <laughs> Uh, better stop now, and I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, in the book, Fezzik is constantly rhyming. Like, he loves rhyming. This is the only rhyming that we get in the movie. That's true. They don't really ever even... Do they even refer to it again later? No. Oh, that's too bad. Because yeah. I, I do love that. Because at points later on, like, when they're scared, Fezzik will start coming up with rhymes. And, like, I re- it's just really sweet. I love him and Inigo's relationship and dynamic yeah you know it's like very touching and like inigo kind of doing that for fezzik there's maybe another time that there's a rhyming i'm i don't want to say that there's no other rhyming because i can't quite remember no but they're really like in the book it's constantly and it's kind of funny (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) so uh they realize that they are being pursued by a man in another boat so they reach the cliffs of insanity (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something about like Wallace Shawn saying that line yeah. again it like heightens the humor of it mm-hmm. so they all climb on top of Fezzik who single handedly carries all of them up the cliffs of insanity <laughs> all while Vizzini is like screaming at him screaming in his face <laughs> and the man in black is uh, coming up behind quickly yeah they get to the top they cut the rope but the man in black is still climbing up the cliff face using his hands and feet uh, and Vizzini is like, okay, uh, Inigo, like, you take care of him. If he doesn't fall, just kill him. You're a great fencer. We're going to go and keep going. Like, we can't get uh, trapped by this man. And again, we have, like, <laughs> Vizzini constantly saying inconceivable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is amazing. That's such, like, such an iconic just line and gag <laughs> from this entire movie, him saying inconceivable. And also Inigo, like, calling him out on it. Like, yeah. I don't really think that's an appropriate use of that word <laughs> in this situation. <laughs> I I also love the man in black, take, which, you know, we find out later is Wesley, slowly climbing back up. And this is, like, straight from the book, too. And Inigo is waiting at the top and he's getting bored and he's like, can I, like, can you please hurry up? And then they're like debating about like, I could help you. And it's like, <laughs> uh, I couldn't trust you to help me. And like, finally, he swears on his father and then agrees to let him up on the rope. And then he gets up there and he's like, yeah, you can just chill for a minute. Yeah, take a break. Yeah. You, you've earned it. <laughs> it's like mutual respect between them. They have the best dynamic. They do. They're so funny. Besides Wesley and Buttercup, who have a great dynamic also. Like, Wesley and Inigo have just the funniest dynamic. And this scene is so great, and it goes on so long, and it's good in so many different ways, right? First, like you said, when they're arguing about whether he'll trust him or not. Yeah. Then when they're sitting up at the top together, Inigo ends up telling him his tragic backstory, right? 
about how his father was murdered by a six-fingered man. And since then, Inigo has been on this quest for revenge to find him, kill him, and avenge his father's death. We get this backstory in the book kind of in terms of a flashback instead of Inigo telling Wesley about it. It's way more detailed in the book, or at least it takes its time, right? Like, I think in the movie you get all the, the basic plot points, but it's almost like a complicated story to try to tell quickly. Like, oh, a six fingered man commissioned my father to make this specific sword that I'm holding. And then he killed him. And, you know, he kind of has to like rush through it almost. But we do find out that Inigo is kind of on this quest of vengeance, right? Yeah, yeah. And he explains this. And I think this gives Wesley a lot of respect for Inigo and like, for their dynamic continuing. And then they have this epic sword fight, which honestly was really entertaining to watch. Oh, it's so good. They spent, from what I read, a lot of time practicing this sword fight. Like, both actors did all of their own sword fighting in this movie. Wow. They were like, we really want this to be, like, a classic sword fight fight from, like, older films. It's very Robin Hood. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, we really want it to be legit. And I really love the escalation of it. Like, yes. it's kind of fun and kind of them testing each other out at first. And it begins to escalate. And then, of course... We find out, oh, Inigo is actually fighting with his left hand when he's right-handed, and that shifts the battle. And then, of course, oh, Wesley is fighting with his left hand when he's right-handed, and that shifts it back. I love the flipping yes. thing that they do. They, like, let each other do it, yeah. right? They, like, let, let the other person finish the flip before they resume the sword fight. They're gentlemen of honor. There's another part where I think Inigo, like, throws his sword in the air at one point. I think he gets, like, disarmed and it flies in the air. Yeah. And he kind of, like, steps a few feet back and then catches it. Yeah, but, like, Wesley, like, waits for him to catch it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And then... Inigo ends up losing, which we know is crazy because Inigo, especially in the book, is supposed to be like possibly the greatest swordsman in the world. And Wesley, he's prepared to die. And then Wesley's like, no, of course, like you're amazing. I'm not going to kill you, but I will knock you unconscious. So he <laughs> he knocks out Inigo and then continues to pursue uh, the, the other two kidnappers. Yes. A lot of people get knocked unconscious in this movie. There's a, there is a lot of that, isn't there? I wonder if it's because not a lot of people die. Yeah. There's not a lot of killing, but they need to like have some kind of violence. They need to incapacitate people yeah. like multiple times. So many people are knocked okay, unconscious. Okay, so let's keep track. That's yeah. one. Yeah. One person's knocked well, unconscious. Wasn't Buttercup like That's squeezed true. to death? That's true. She got <laughs> squeezed on the neck when she got kidnapped. Not okay. squeezed to death. She was just squeezed to death. I thought I said squeezed to the no, neck. No, I said squeezed oh, to death. Oh, you did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she got squeezed to death. <laughs> Okay, so we're at two now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the man in black continues to pursue, and Vizzini sees this and has Fezzik stay behind to just <laughs> bludgeon him to death, like, yeah. from behind a rock. And, of course, Fezzik is like, oh, that doesn't seem very sportsmanlike, does it? I know. I love his sense of honor here. And he ends up throwing a rock at Wesley, but missing so that they can uh, fight Fight each other like civilized people. With their bare hands. With their bare hands. <laughs> <laughs> so they have this kind of like, not even so much a wrestling match, but kind of this like uh, grappling encounter where Wesley manages to get behind uh, Fezzik. 
and uh, put pressure on his windpipe and basically incapacitate Fezzik. That's three. So that's three. <laughs> I do want to talk here about uh, Andre the Giant a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Like, he seems like such a, from everything you will read about this movie, everyone just loved him on set. They said he was just like such a kind and sweet person. Uh, he called everyone boss. <laughs> and I think it was something he said like, a kind of tactic to almost put people at ease a little bit, mm. like because of his size. Like, yeah, I might be big, but like you're you're the boss kind of interesting. And like there's so many stories, like apparently they would be filming late at night when it was like really cold out and Robin Wright would be cold and like Andre the Giant would just put his hand on oh. top of her head. <laughs> and she's like his whole hand would like cover the entire top of my head oh and my it would God. just like warm me up. <laughs> And he said, you know, in interviews about it or like on set that like he felt like really just one of the actors like he wasn't he didn't feel like a standout. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Andre the Giant's life and career are really, really sad and tragic in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, Like with his with the wrestling career, like he had to travel a lot. But like, God, I. I've only seen clips of it. It was ages ago, so I can't even talk on it too specifically. But like to be his size and to travel like whether on a plane yeah. or by any other means, like nothing is built for his size in order to like get from point A to point B. So like his whole life was like a big struggle in that way. And by the time they were filming this movie, actually, uh, he was suffering a lot of back pain mm-hmm. um, just because of his size and a lot of issues with like his condition and he couldn't even in the final scene when Robin Wright jumps into his arms, uh, they'd have her cabled up because wow. he couldn't support her weight. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it it was really sad. And I mean, he died in 1993. I know he died very young. Yes. Um. So but like from everything you'll read about the making of this movie, people just like really loved him. And he just seemed like such a kind and genuine person. And. William Goldman has said that, like, he thought of Andre the Giant when he wrote the part. Yeah. Which yeah. makes sense because, like, he had a career in the book. Fezzik has an early career, we in find wrestling. out, in his backstory in wrestling, <laughs> yeah. where he fight multiple people and travel <laughs> around. And you're like, wow, that really is just Andre the Giant, isn't it? Yeah. So just some interesting kind of backstory about the making of the film. Yeah. And I really I think he's great in this role. I mean. It was made for him. It really, yeah, it really was. And like, I don't know, it's just really nice that, I mean, he was so well known as a wrestler, right? But it's nice that he's in something like this film that is so enduring and so well regarded. You know what I mean? Kind of of to be remembered for something else, too. To have that legacy. Yeah. I also read that William Goldman wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger for the role. Yeah, I think, so this movie was in development hell for a while, and I think... Early on, he thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger because I think at that point, Andre the Giant was at like the peak of his fame wrestling mm-hmm. and Schwarzenegger was kind of a nobody. But then by the time <laughs> the movie did get made, Arnold Schwarzenegger was this megastar. Yeah. And I don't even think Andre the Giant was probably wrestling anymore with his back problems. Yeah. So it kind of like switched <laughs> back almost to like the original plan. That's so funny. Yeah. So after Wesley incapacitates Fezzik, which is our third, our third, <laughs> our third unconscious knockout, uh, he has to face Vizzini, who has set up a nice little picnic for yeah. them. And they he challenges him to a battle of the wits. 
You know what's really funny about this is Vizzini is the one who set up the picnic and the wine goblets. But it's Wesley who comes up with, like, the poisoning I thing. know. What did Vizzini want yeah. to do? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was genuinely like, I can't outrun him, so I might as well just sit here and, like... Eat some cheese? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they have this whole face-off where Wesley is like, okay, I have poison. I'm going to poison one of these wine goblets. We'll put one in front of each of us, and you decide which one you want to drink out of, and I have to drink out of whichever one you don't pick. And whoever doesn't die obviously wins. This is so funny. The whole <laughs> reasoning that Vizzini goes through with like Wallace, uh, Sean, just like screaming, just being like, I can obviously not choose the wine in front of me because of this. And I can't choose the wine in front of you. He just keeps saying why he can't choose both wines yeah. like over and over and over again. <laughs> and it's kind of described as like Wesley in the book seems like like a little freaked out and scared, which I think is just like an act. Yeah. But like in the film, I just love Wesley just watching him and just being like, truly your intellect is unmatched. (laughs) (laughs) And just letting him go on and on about like Australia and like uh, criminals and like, oh, being a man of understanding your own mortality. And And pirates. (laughs) And and pirates. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I mean, this is like such... This is it's funny because like really Vizzini isn't in the movie that much. No, but he's so powerful. He's so iconic I for know. like these early scenes. He's so well remembered and this scene in particular is like <laughs> so iconic. I also love just seeing Buttercup, Robin Wright, sitting there <laughs> blindfolded, just doing nothing as Vizzini is like going on and on and like she can't do anything. No, she's just sitting there like a statue. <laughs> Vizzini tries like swapping the goblets, which I I don't know if <laughs> I don't know what the purpose of that is, <laughs> other than after they drink, he thinks he's outfooled him and of course falls over dead laughing. Yeah. <laughs> and we discover that Wesley had poisoned both goblets anyway because he had an immunity to the poison. Yeah. So none of it like mattered at all. <laughs> Good thing he had that poison on him. I know. I mean, <laughs> if you'd built up a tolerance to a certain type of poison. I mean, like... Bring it with you everywhere. Yeah, you'd have it on you at all times, yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, you could poison everybody. Who knows when you would need that? <laughs> Who knows when you want to poison, like, the punch bowl at a party or something? <laughs> uh, after this, though, Vizzini drops dead, and then Wesley and Buttercup are together, and Buttercup doesn't know that this is Wesley at this point. No. And so he's just like, oh, yes, I am the Dread Pirate Roberts. I'm taking you away. And Buttercup is very like, listen, Prince Humberdink... I is crazy. Like he's super into hunting. He loves it. He'll find me no matter what. And they have this whole discussion about like him saying like, "Oh, your love." And she's like, "He's not my love." And I don't really know what the point of this is. I don't either, Adina. Like Wesley seems to be mad at Buttercup that she got engaged so shortly after she thought he died. And he doesn't even, like, she explains, oh, not knowing it's Wesley, like, oh, I was once in love with this farm boy, and then he died tragically. There's no love left in my heart. Yeah. And he still, like, doesn't give a shit. No, and, like, I don't know if she tells him this, but we know that she was threatened with death 
Yeah. Like, she had to be engaged to the prince or he would have killed her. Also, (laughs) this is, like, literally just dawning on me. We never find out how he found out about this plot. No. At all. (laughs) Or, like, what his general plan was. Like, I mean, I guess it was to save her. Yeah. But then to take her for himself. Well, and, like, he says that he, for, like, three years, he thought that he was going to be killed, right? Because he was basically a prisoner yeah, of a yeah. pirate. But then it's like five years later. So it's like two years where he was just tooling around as the Dread Pirate Roberts and never contacted Buttercup to yeah. tell her that he was alive. <laughs> and now he's like, how dare you? And he's literally, he's literally going off about how women are fickle and women lie and women yeah. are shit. And actually, in the book, he slaps her. He does. There's that scene in the movie where he almost goes to slap her. In the book, he actually slaps her. And I gotta say, William Goldman, I don't like the slap. And I also don't like this scene of him just like tormenting her. And it doesn't work. And I don't like it. And I'm really angry about it. (laughs) And I will say that this is one of two things that I don't like in this movie. Yeah, I agree. Because like, it just also doesn't even make any sense. Because like, what... If his end goal is to be like, oh, I miss her and I want her back and I need to save her. Like, why is he now suddenly like, oh, you bitch, you like liar. And if he's like testing her in some way, like, go home. You don't need to do that. Like, either (laughs) rescue her and tell her who you are so you can be together or just don't fucking rescue her and go be a baby somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, like, (laughs) I don't know if it's like, I, I don't know. Like, people... I I think it's like an older, not older concept, but like people thought sexual tension was something else back then where it was like, oh, he has all the power and like she doesn't know it's him and he's going to like torment her. Right. And it's like kind of funny and kind of like sexy. Right. Like I feel like there's this like older idea of like sexual tension in films and stuff that's like that. But in especially by today's standards, it's like, okay, this isn't really actually working. Yeah. And was he ever going to like reveal to her who he was? Yeah, I don't know. What's the plan here? Um, She does push him off a cliff, which (laughs) at that point I was like, good. Yeah. Um, And that's when he does his as you wish as he's falling down and she realizes (laughs) that it's him. I would have still been like. Ah. <laughs> 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 you're good you're good she she tumbles after him though and they are reunited and we have this very beautiful scene of them kind of laying down um as they've just tumbled down the hill together they kiss and then in the movie the grandson interrupts and he's like not with the kissing. Please stop with the yeah, kissing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, the grandfather's like, oh, maybe someday you won't mind so much, you know? Yeah, which is funny because in the book, we don't get a reunion scene, like, at all. We don't even get them kissing or saying, like, what we get in the movie, which is like, oh, my God, you're alive, and, and the two of them being together. So we have the author being like, Oh, yeah, S. Morgenstern just immediately cuts to them being in the fire swamp and doesn't have a reunion scene. And I always thought that they sh- there should be a reunion scene, and I wanted that. And I wrote a whole scene of them being reunited, but then I wasn't allowed to put it in the book because of the lawyers. So if you want the reunion scene, write in to this publisher. Here's yeah. the address. <laughs> Here's everything. Write in, and we will send you the reunion scene. And and in... um. 
later publications of the book, there's a footnote of a website you can go to to read what this letter was. But you could actually, at the time of this publication, write in, ask for the reunion scene, and you would be supposedly mailed the reunion scene that he had written that you could read. Yes. What really you got sent in the mail was a whole letter by the author, William Goldman, explaining how uh, this whole story about, like, him telling his publishers this plan and, like, it being a whole ordeal. And then the lawyers of S. Morgenstern showed up and were like, you can't do that. And it's, like, tied up in a legal battle. So <laughs> you don't even get the actual reunion write-up. You got, no. like, a letter from the a author. A letter of explanation. Yeah, so... There's, there's this reunion scene that does not exist, Ian. No. That he pretends to have existed. And he's like, it exists. It doesn't. Uh, and if you write in, you get a fake letter <laughs> about how he is involved in numerous lawsuits, which also don't <laughs> exist, from the like the lawyers of this author's estate who does not exist. exist. <laughs> it's like this super absurd level of like I mean imagine this pre-internet Ian oh I know imagine reading this book (laughs) and being like wait is there a person named S. Morgenstern like is there a reunion scene that I can write into and then getting this letter back from the publisher And being like, this is legal stuff. And you're like, I, I, I guess I have to believe I it. I can't, true. I can't look it up. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk to your friends and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I read that book, too. And like, I got the same letter. Yeah. Back. And you're like, oh, well, I guess this is just real. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It reminds me. Did you ever read? And I, I didn't read many of them. But um a series of unfortunate events. Yes. And the like Lemony Snicket, mm-hmm. right, as an author. And like there's a book out called The Unauthorized Autobiography of <laughs> Lemony Snicket. And like that's what came to mind for me as like a, a different kind of version of that, like this fictitious author and like their yeah. backstory and kind of this like really absurd meta <laughs> narrative going on that just gets more and more ridiculous. Yeah, it's very funny. I think it's hilarious. Uh, I would have really liked to know what it was like for people who read yes. it. Like when it first came out. And did you have doubts? Were you like, oh yeah, this is like William Goldman and his wife and his son and like the story, yeah. like, you know? Because I mean, the book is similar to the film where like there is this kind of goofy silliness that is kind of playing off of like fairy tales and like older stories like this but there's also an earnestness to it as well right there's something that feels legitimate about it all that yes it's funny but also it's it's really doing that story right Mm -hmm. and the same thing with like this absurd backstory of like uh creating the abridged version of this novel and like it seems really ridiculous but it's still well within the realm of like plausibility i know it's just <laughs> pushing it like a little too yeah, far it's where just... you're like wait <laughs> very 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 funny and yes. i enjoy it uh so the the prince prince Humperdinck is hot on the trail he's following uh the kidnappers and we discover through his vantage point that Inigo had woken up from being knocked out and had escaped. Same thing with Fezzik. They discover the body of Vizzini, and they realize that the two, that the single kidnapper and the princess are have fled into the fire swamp. Yes. 
<laughs> and this is where we get the very iconic uh, location in the film of the fire swamp. Yes, they go into the fire swamp, which no one has ever survived, allegedly. And they are braving the fire. Uh, Buttercup falls into some like sinking sand at one point and they have to climb out. That part in the, I mean, I like, I loved the visual effects of it in the film. Like how quickly she disappears and Wesley yeah. diving after in the book, it is very terrifying. Yeah. It's like this. It's really long. It's like this micro powder sand that you just keep sinking and sinking. And like she talks about it like the moment you open your mouth, it floods into your mouth and like <laughs> gets under your eyelids. And like Ugh. it's really. And Wesley reaching for her accidentally grabs like a skeleton hand at one point. Like yeah. it's very dark, but really cool. It's very in-depth. This is also where Wesley tells Buttercup the whole story about the Dread Pirate Roberts thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, so basically the Dread Pirate Roberts is a name that's passed down from pirate to pirate so that they can use the power of the name to be, like, super successful in their pirating adventures. He's like, the man who uh, I met, who was the Dread Pirate Roberts, was actually named Ryan. Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) And the man before him was... Cumberbund or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, they all get rich enough to retire and then they pass on the name and then that, the name gets passed on again and it just keeps going like that. Yeah. And so, you know, the man who raided Wesley's ship talked to Wesley when he was about to kill him. Wesley pleaded his case for true love and Ryan slash the Dread Pirate Roberts was like, all right, I'll take you on as my valet and kind of trained him to be a pirate. And then Wesley took over the name of the Dread Pirate Roberts. And he talks about like, now that we're together, I'll find someone else to like pass the name off to. And like the two of us can like live together. Yeah. So we kind of figure out for, based on that story where Wesley has been and how he survived and acquired the incredible skills that he has. Right. Yes. Sailing the high seas. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's talk about R-O-U-S's. Rodents of unusual size. Rodents of unusual size. I don't think they exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that shot of when Wesley dives after Buttercup into the sand. There's just a long shot showing the sand. And you see one of them just like casually walk past, which is very funny. Well, and it's funny, too, because as like they're recovering from the sand and everything, he looks back and he sees one of them. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And like, he's kind of like getting her up and moving her along all while pretending nothing's happening. <laughs> and like, he's keeping an eye on them. And yeah. that's where she says like, what about the rodents? Of you? And that's where he makes the line. Like, I don't think I don't like know. clearly watching them yes. like behind them. <laughs> and then he gets attacked. This fight scene is so ridiculous. The thing that kills me is that like, Wesley is grappling with this one hand to hand. It's like biting his shoulder and Buttercup is just watching. This is the other part that I don't like. In this <laughs> I know. Movie, is I know. that Buttercup just stands there and does nothing. In the book, she also stands there and does nothing. Yes. But I don't like it. You, it's not as obviously obvious in a book, right? That yeah. She's not helping. In the movie when she's just standing there, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> then when it comes after her, she grabs a branch and tries hitting it in the head. Yeah. And then when it ignores her again she stops fighting it and i'm like help wesley oh my god i love wesley rolling it into the fire yes then getting his sword and stabbing it what 10 times (laughs) he stabs the rous so many times it's great excessive he's very 
battle damage to this point. Yes. Right. He's but, very fucked up. But but very handsome, right? Very adventurous <laughs> looking. They escape the fire swamp only to be surrounded by Prince Humperdinck, Count Rugen, and many soldiers. And Buttercup says that, you know, if we surrender, do you promise not to hurt him? Like I'll go, I'll go with you. Um, and this is her trying to save Wesley and keep him from death. And she goes off with the prince, and Wesley is left with Count Rugen, who clubs him knocks, over the head. Knocks him unconscious. That's four? That's four. That's four, baby. But not before Wesley notices that Count Rugen has six fingers. <laughs> yes. The six-fingered man. He's returned. So the book kind of goes into quite a long stretch here where not a lot is happening and I think the film very wisely condenses a lot of this. Wesley is taken to the zoo of death in the book, which is the pit of despair, essentially. And in the book, he's tortured for a long time. Yeah. Except the torturing isn't actually working on him. <laughs> like, he's acting like it is, but he's also, like, not actually bothered by any of it. <laughs> He has very uh, strong mental powers, apparently. So the torture is not really affecting him. Uh, and at this time, too, Buttercup and Prince Humperdinck are getting ready for the wedding. But she's growing more and more uneasy because she's realizing that she can't actually marry Prince Humperdinck because she loves Wesley. And this is realized through her dream, right? Yes. And this... In the book, she actually has a lot a of lot dreams. A lot of dreams. <laughs> but it does start out in the same way that the movie does and gives us this fake out scene. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like, oh, and then the, the king died, and then the prince quickly married uh, Buttercup, and then he presented her. And of course, we have the grandson being like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, this is not how the story goes. And the grandfather being very like, oh, I'll stop reading it if you don't think I'm doing it right. In the book, the dad, who's the one reading it, actually, like, puts the book down and refuses to keep reading it for a while. Yeah. Which really upsets the son. <laughs> yeah, William Goldman, the author, remembers how when his dad was reading it to him, he got, like, all offended. Yeah. Um, And this whole narrative about that. But, you know, Buttercup is presented to the kingdom and someone starts booing her and calling her trash for not marrying her true love. The queen of garbage. The queen of putrescence. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Boo. <laughs> it's only a dream, though. Yes. I do love the way it's shot, though. And even in the book, the way it kind of, like, fakes you out. Yeah, yeah. In the book, she has, like, several other dreams. One of them where, like, a baby stabs her or something. I don't know. Oh, she's, like, breastfeeding her child. And the child is like, mm, you're uh, the milk is sour. I'm not into <laughs> it. Because you're a cold bitch. you're a cold bitch. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> she doesn't say that, but. <laughs> no, but it's, like, a few really bad dreams in a row. Mm -hmm. So she goes to the prince and is like, listen, I'm sorry, but I don't think I can marry you. I'm in love with Wesley. But he's sailed off because that's what the prince told her. Like, oh, I'll let him go. But she doesn't know that he's being tortured, like, in the castle. Yeah. So the prince is like, you know what? I'll send out four ships to try to find him with the letter that you've written. And if he wants to come back, he can. And if he does, you can go to him. But, you know, how about if he doesn't, you still marry me? Yeah. And she's like, okay. Okay, sounds good. Uh, we get this reveal at this time in both the book and the movie that the prince is actually the one who hired Vizzini 
to kidnap Buttercup, and that he's still planning on killing Buttercup. And his reasoning is that, oh, I'm trying to start a war with Gilder, the other country, and we need a legitimate reason to do so. So the people all really love Buttercup. Like, she's so pretty and kind. Like, they're obsessed with her. So if I give them, like, the perfect victim, the perfect reason to hate the Gilder country, then we'll go to war and it'll be really great. (laughs) (laughs) There's a really great scene when he's talking to the Count in the film. And I think this scene is in the book, too, but it's just so funny in the film where the Count asks him, like, oh, do you want to come watch me torture Wesley? And he's like, uh... I have to plan the wedding. I have to decide who's sitting where. I have the parade to think about and like what order people are going to go into. And then I have to kill my wife. (laughs) I'm swamped. (laughs) It's so good. There's so many lines and so much humor in this film that really feels like kind of a Mel Brooks movie. Yes. In a way. It really does in many ways. And that's the thing that's so interesting about Rob Reiner as a director is I think through almost all of his filmography – all of his movies are funny. Even Misery, yeah. that is so dark, is so funny at points, right? Yeah. But his humor kind of changes throughout each movie. Like, I'm sure there's some connective tissue between all of it, but, like, Sp- This is Spinal Tap is just such an absurd, <laughs> ridiculous satire. It's, like, so <laughs> over the top, but so funny, right? Here, it's, like, Kind of satirical, but almost kind of more Mel Brooksy in its like delivery. Yeah, and winking at the camera. Yeah, like Stand by Me has a lot of like funny moments. It's more like the kids are just funny. Yeah, right? the it's kids like are kid hilarious. Humor. Yeah, and like the pie eating scene. Right? Yeah, this is worth mentioning too that we have done episodes on Misery and Stand by Me. If yes. you're a Rob Reiner fan, mm-hmm. but like he's such an interesting director in how he can kind of like approach the comedy. In, with different mentalities, right? Yeah. With different sensibilities. I really like him as a director. I, he's fantastic. I feel like I haven't really thought about him as like a favorite of mine. But now that I think about all the movies that he's done, didn't he do When Harry Met Sally as well? Yes, he did. Yeah. And I'm like, God, this man has range. He does. And all of his movies are so good. They are. And like... <laughs> You kind of keep forgetting, like, what his filmography is because they are all so different. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, rom-coms and, like, coming-of-age stories and high fantasy and mockumentary. Like, it's just, it's all over the place. Yeah. But it does really make me want to, like, like look at his filmography and maybe, like, fill in the gaps of what we haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Just a really great director, and I, I love most of the movies that he's done. Yeah, same. Around this time, the Count has his machine in working order. Yes. And he's going to torture Wesley with it. <laughs> It's a suction-based machine. <laughs> this is so weird in the book, like all the suction cups. In the book, there's like a bunch of tiny ones so that his entire body is covered in suction and, cups. And like on his tongue and like on his eyeballs, like it's like really gross. Yeah. And it's a machine that like literally sucks the life out of you mm-hmm. and is very painful apparently. Yes. And this is going on. Buttercup is waiting for Wesley to come for her. And then there is this kind of, like, realization that she has that, oh, Prince Humperdinck did not actually send his ships to try to find Wesley. Yeah. And it was all a ploy. And she kind of confronts him and ends up saying, like, it doesn't matter because Wesley is still going to come for me and I believe in him. And this is very – this goes back to to when she was like, you were dead – 
This is like right after they're reunited in the movie anyway. And she said, you were dead. And he's like, you you should have believed in me. Like not even yeah. death can separate, separate us. I'll always come for you. So this is her being like, okay, I promised Wesley that I would believe <laughs> in him. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't care. I believe that he's going to come even if the ships weren't sent. Um, and she really like gives it to the prince in this scene. She talks about how what a coward he is and that like he hunts other animals just to like make himself feel better. She calls him a coward with a heart full of fear and the slimiest weakling to ever crawl the earth. <laughs> this is like a beginning of a lot of dunks on uh, Prince Humperdinck that I really appreciate. That's true, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone has like the best disses for him. Yeah. Uh, he is very pissed though, throws her in her room very violently in mm-hmm. the book. And uh, goes and pays Wesley a visit. Yep. Straight to the machine, cranking it up to 50. (laughs) Turns it up to 11, (laughs) as in Spinal Tap. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And Wesley dies. Yeah. He's dead. Let's uh, go back to a couple of other characters at this point. Yes. Uh, Inigo, after surviving his encounter with the man in black way earlier in the story, returned to the beginning which were their orders from Fazzini that if anything goes wrong and we get separated, go back to the beginning, which he interprets as going back to this uh, neighborhood in the city that they organized the plan from. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Fezzik can't quite remember the plan (laughs) and ends up just like wandering around for a while. He gets recruited to be in a brute squad. Yeah. Um, And, or not Vizzini. Vizzini is dead. Vizzini's dead. Uh, And Ego ends up back in the thieves' quarter. In the movie, it's the thieves' forest. And he's just drinking his sorrows, right? He's like, I don't know what to do with my life anymore. He hasn't been able to find the six-fingered man, and he has no purpose, and Vizzini's not there to give him work anymore either. This is uh, the part, though, where Fezzik and Inigo are reunited, and we have (laughs) Fezzik revealing to him that he knows where the six-fingered man is. (laughs) The the, The movie does this, too, but the book, it's especially funny that, like, Fezzik keeps revealing information to Inigo that keeps, like, causing him to faint and pass <laughs> out. Like, first it's like, Vizzini's dead, and then, like, I know where the six-fingered man is, and, like, all these things that he keeps passing out. Like, <laughs> And it's really sweet, too. It's more of a gag in the film, but in the book, Fezzik, like, really takes a lot of time to help uh, Inigo, like, sober up. Yeah. Because he's just been in, like, a drunken state for, like, weeks. Yeah. So Fezzik helps him sober up, and then they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? How do we find, how do we get to the Count, the Six-Fingered Man, so you can take your revenge? And unfortunately, Vizzini was the brains of their operation. Yeah. And they're like, we need new brains for this operation. (laughs) And then they realize, well, the man in black bested all of us, including Vizzini, so let's find him. He's got to be around here somewhere. Yeah, he'll be able to come up with a plan for us to infiltrate the castle and kill the six-fingered man. Uh, so they're seeking him. They end up hearing his scream. And uh, Inigo is like, obviously, that's him. Because his true love is getting married. Which, how did they know that Buttercup is his true love? I think Fezzik filled him in on a lot of that. Okay. Because he was in the Brute Squad for a while. So I think he was... That's like, okay, so... I think as an adaptation, the movie does a really good job, but there are points where I feel like it is unnecessarily a little convoluted. 
Or, yeah. like, it could have trimmed things down, like, a little bit, right? Even in small moments, right, where Inigo is drunken on the stoop, and he's saying something about, he said to return to the beginning. Yeah. Right? What's he talking about? And he's like, Vizzini said return to the beginning, which would be here because this is where we formed the plan. And Like, we don't need a reason for you to be drunk in the street. Like, you no. can just be drunk in the street. Sure. Or he could have just said, I came back to the safe house. Yeah. Right? Like, be a little simpler with it, you know? Yeah. Or um, in this portion, like, Fezzik was on the brute squad, and... It was this reveal to Inigo that like, oh, it's Fezzik. And then Fezzik is explaining a lot of things to Inigo that we don't know why he would know. Yeah. And I just think like this, this part of the film is a place where they maybe could have like simplified things. Yeah. Not, not followed the story, the book so closely. No. Yeah. Made it a little clearer. Maybe abridged the abridgment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think that would have been valid here. Yeah. So Fezzik and Indigo are trying to find Wesley based on, like, pinpointing where the harrowing scream came from. (laughs) In the film, they uh, discover the Pit of Despair. And in the book, they discover the Zoo of Death, which is actually where Wesley is. He's on the fifth floor. Or the fifth level, because it's it's in a basement. So it's like the fifth basement level. It goes down. Um, This is the biggest cut from... Yes. The book to the movie where there's a whole scene of uh, Fezzik and Inigo going through all the levels of the Zoo of Death, right? And they're, they face snakes, bats, a spider, like this whole <laughs> series of events. I love the spider part is yeah, so funny. The spider's just chilling on like a door handle and waiting for someone to open the door and they'll be bitten and it's super poisonous. But then Fezzik just ends up charging through the door yeah. and doesn't even use the handle so the spider gets crushed. It, well, it gets knocked to the ground and then Inigo just sees it and then just steps on it. <laughs> <laughs> very, very funny. And the whole reason that the zoo of death exists in the first place is so the count can kill things every day. Well, it's, it's or not for a count, the, the prince. The I'm prince, sorry. yes. Yeah, the yeah. prince wants like things to hunt. So one of the floors is like fast animals. And then one of the floors is, and it's like small things too, like hummingbirds or whatever. <laughs> like the one floor is like poisonous things, right? Or things that are like gross. So like each floor has its own classification so like <laughs> Fezzik and Inigo are going through the floors and it's kind of this whole sequence it's like very fun and like their dynamic is great yes but they finally reach Wesley and discover that he's been killed yes and I see why they cut this yeah right? because yeah. it's just a lot of extra going through these levels of just these two characters and they need to get to Wesley right like get to the get to the point um I do need to mention our fifth knockout which is when they knock out the albino That's, in the movie yes they knock out the albino <laughs> is there any others that we've missed is is wesley being quote-unquote killed a, a knockout? knockout i don't think so i mean <laughs> it t- completely functions in the same way though, yeah but they don't think like about it. hit him or like restrict him in any way to cause the knockout he just gets killed i guess I think you could count it, but I'm fine with not counting it. Okay, so the albino makes five. Yeah. Right? Okay. So so they find Wesley, they realize he's dead, and then Inigo is like, there might still be hope for him, and they take him to Miracle Max. Miracle Max with uh, Billy Crystal and Miracle Max's wife played by Carol Kane. Yes. 
So funny. <laughs> so great. <laughs> well, and there's there's a it's funny, too, because like uh, Billy Crystal is playing it like very Jewish in a lot of ways. And in the book, it's even described that way as like yeah. a uh, note from is it supposed to be S. Morgenstern or is it Goldman? Who Goldman. says it? it's Goldman who t- who talks about like the subtext of kind of like the way the characters speak and like mm-hmm. how they're coded almost. So like Billy Crystal's like. He talked about, like, basing it off, like, family members of his own. <laughs> and, he, God, he's so funny. I read that Rob Reiner literally couldn't be on set during these scenes because he was laughing so hard. Oh, my God. <laughs> and apparently, Mandy Patinkin said that the only injury he s- suffered the entire film was he bruised a rib, stifling his laughter in those scenes because Billy Crystal was making him laugh so hard. And he's like, I swear to God, that's the only time I ever like hurt myself during the making of this movie. That's so funny. (laughs) I know. I love him being like, I can't help you. And then, and then them being like, oh, he's, he's dead already. And he's like, I'll take a look. (laughs) Or like at one point he like lifts his arm up and it falls back down. And he's like, "Eh, I've seen worse. Yeah. He's he's mostly dead, which is different <laughs> from all the way dead. <laughs> uh, it's it's just such a great scene with Billy Crystal. Yeah, uh, it's he very doesn't. Funny. He doesn't want to help them until he finds out that this will ruin the happiness of Prince Humperdinck, and then he's on board. Yeah, then he's all for it. <laughs> so he comes up with a what, like a pill, essentially, yeah. uh, that they are to give Wesley uh, to revive him, but it's. I was confused about this in the film, and it's maybe a little clear in the book because I was like, they just take the pill and take Wesley, and then they go all the way to the castle. Yeah. And then give him the pill, and I'm like, why didn't you just immediately give it to him? I know. Then it's kind of explained in the book, although it took, I think, both of us a while to, like, kind of understand that they were like, he's been dead for so long that, like, it'll take a long time for him to, like, be fully revived. Yeah. But I think the first hour he's back, he will be stronger, stronger, but still not strong. Enough. Yeah, this is what was confusing because they're like, he has an hour of like the ability to do stuff. Yes. But he's still so weak in that hour. I know. So I'm like, what's the point of it? And then what happens at the end of the hour? Like he just is dead again. Yeah, but he's not. He's not. So what's it- the difference between how he is? When he has the hour versus when he doesn't. Because I don't really notice a difference in the book. No, I don't really get this at all. Like, it adds another time factor, but it's just confusing, right? Yeah. And, like, that explains why they waited to give him the pill until they were, like, ready to act. But that's not very clear, and especially in the movie. No. I don't, I I don't mean, know if this is explained at all. The movie just kind of skips this whole, like, time limit, which I think is smart. And they just have him getting like gradually stronger yes. the longer they go. And I think that just makes more sense. It does. Um, But yeah, it does make the choice to give him the pill right when they're at the castle gate kind of bizarre. Yes. So I, I feel like they should have just either gone one way or the other. It feels like they're kind of in between. Yeah. And once again, that comes from like maybe the screenplay is a little too close to the book yeah. when it doesn't need to be necessarily. It, yeah, when it really doesn't need to be. There's another time element thing in the book because they're trying to get into the castle before the wedding starts, and they know when the wedding starts, so they're they're on this time crunch not only with Wesley's like hour of animation, but also the wedding. But little do they know that Prince Humperdinck has moved up the wedding, and so it's this whole kind of... This is the time they think. This is the time it actually is. This is how much time Wesley has left. It does 
make it more dramatic, but I think it's a little needlessly confusing. You know what's so funny is until they showed the the priest or the whatever his title is. Yeah. Until they showed him on screen. And honestly, there was a moment where, like, honestly, it was just before he spoke. I was like, oh, my God, this is the marriage <laughs> scene. Like, like I forgot. I totally forgot that was even in this movie. Like, literally <laughs> until the moment it happened. And the funnier part is this is verbatim in the book. Yeah. Like, the whole way he speaks <laughs> And everything and him like dragging on the ceremony when the prince wants to hurry it up. But like even just the speech being identical and it's it's written in that way in the book. Yeah. So <laughs> I was continuously surprised by how many parts of the film came very directly from the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book is a really great source to draw from because there's so many of these jokes that like, you know, would work well visually. Yeah, well, that's the thing, too, is, like, there's points in the book where you read something that maybe doesn't read like a joke. But in the movie, when you see it, it works so well as a joke. Yeah. And I'm like, was it supposed to be even funny in the book, like, or not? Or is it just because William Goldman, like, writes screenplays and can kind of, like, envision how it would be and kind of has that sensibility, you know? Like, the point when... um. The Count Flees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is like not necessarily funny in the book, right? Yeah. But the visual of it in the film is so great <laughs> of him like getting in stance to fight and then just turning take, tail. You know what it reminded me a lot of? And I'm sure it, this is a reverse inspiration. It reminded me of um the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. When he's like, oh, my God, she's been murdered. And you think I did it. And, and then just he runs. just takes off into yeah. the background. Reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, probably inspired by this for sure. Uh, so they they have this plan. They give Wesley the pill. He he's awake, but he can't really move. <laughs> no. And so uh, he's able to talk to them, and they're trying to devise this plan about how to storm the castle. And I love how sassy Wesley is in this part <laughs> because he's literally like. Uh, the odds are against us. This is hopeless. And Fezzik's like, look, you moved your head. Like, you wiggled your arms. Like, aren't you excited about that? <laughs> He's, like, so annoyed. I love even him, the comedy of him. Like, they're all looking over the wall at the, the castle gates. And, like, the way Wesley's head is, like, cracked backwards to, so he can, like, see and look so uncomfortable. They have to keep moving his head between each other when <laughs> yeah. they're all talking. Andre the Giant's huge hand on his head, like, <laughs> pivoting it back and forth. It's very good. It's good. They they have this whole plot with the wheelbarrow and the Holocaust cloak and Andre the Giant to scare all the guards away and are able to get through the castle. Yeah, so they infiltrate the castle. This is where Inigo sees the Count, and the Count just flees. Yeah. So Inigo is, like, after him. I love in the film how desperate he sounds trying to, like, get the door open, that, like, he's getting away, and so... Fezzik has to go over and, like, knock the door down for him so he can pursue. Yeah. And this is where Wesley disappears. So, like, mm-hmm. the whole thing is, like, kind of falling apart. Everybody gets separated. Yeah. Let's talk about Inigo and the Count here and just go through the whole scene. Yeah. Um, he's chasing him, um, and the Count manages to get ahead, grabs uh, some kind of dagger, and throws it at Inigo and gets him right in the gut. 
Yes, and really wounds him. Yeah, it looks like he's going down. I mean, he's even like, forgive me, father. Like, I failed you. He's sliding down the wall. And, you know, Count Rugen is like, oh, you're that stupid boy I gave those scars to, blah, blah, blah. It Doesn't it suck to be a failure? Like, all <laughs> oh, this yeah, he, stuff. He said, oh, my God, you made it all this way just to die? <laughs> he's like, that's so sad. Like, it's so mean. I know. He's so awful. Something I want to say here, too, that I kind of like about this plot and this story that's interesting is how Inigo, after this initial encounter with the Count encounter (laughs) where uh he then left to like train in the sword it's such an interesting arc because he became like this master swordsman at such a young age and he's like time to enact vengeance and then like he just could not find the count yeah and he like traveled all over europe and probably into asia and was like looking for this man and couldn't find him didn't know his name and then he kind of like you know is fighting people in different cities for like money and he kind of just like begins to decline and when the story begins like he had been a drunk for a while and Vizzini had sobered him up and got him back going again but he's nowhere near what he used to be it seems yeah his peak performance yeah so I kind of love this idea that he was like this vengeance fueled machine ready to take down the count and then like <laughs> couldn't find him and didn't un- know what to do with his yeah, life. didn't know what to do with his life and then like only now when he's faced with him, he's like not in his prime anymore. Yeah. It's just a really interesting setup, I think. It is. But he's able to find the strength to get up. And Count Rugen is trying to kill him with these blows. And he's glancing them off like he's wounding his himself in the shoulder to like save his own life. But Inigo just keeps getting up and keeps repeating the hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And he just gets more and more dramatic with yes. it. And he's yelling it, hello! <laughs> and like Count Rugen's like, stop it! You know? Um, and he's able to disarm him, wound him. And I love this part where he's like, offer me money. Yes. Offer me power. Offer me anything that I want. And the Count is like, anything, anything. And then he's like, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. And kills him. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's... It's so good. It's so good. Even the moment he stabs him and then he like kicks him back off the sword. Yeah. But it's like so emotional. It's so iconic. And Mandy Patinkin has talked about this scene. First of all, he says playing an ego is like his favorite role he's ever done. (laughs) And he talked about too that like he lost his father years back Mm -hmm. to cancer. And I think just recently he talked in an interview about this scene. He was like very emotional. Mm. I've seen him in other interviews where he is not quite as emotional, but discussing it and just saying like, I felt such a emotional connection to this character. And I felt like I was trying to fight the cancer that had killed him. Right. Wow. And like, he's like, I really felt kind of a cathartic moment filming this scene and feeling like maybe for a moment I had my dad back again. Oh my God. So it's like really sweet that like, and maybe in a subliminal way, that passion and that connection comes through to the viewer. Like, yes, it's iconic and it's a great scene and the sword fight is cool. But like, maybe it's iconic, too, because like you can feel that energy off the actor, you know? Yeah. And I just love that he 
like gives Count Rugen a chance to like beg, even though he knows he's gonna kill him. Yeah. Because he's like, I just want to see you like offer everything you can, but it's not enough because what I really want is my father. Yeah. You know, it's so good. It's great. In the book, uh, Count Rugen just dies of fright. He has like a heart attack because he's so scared. Well, he <laughs> stabbed him a few times. Though. Yeah. He stabbed him in the chest, but like to the left of his heart. He's like going to cut his heart out or something. Yeah. And then he dies of fear. But I'm like, you. he was also stabbed a few times in the chest. <laughs> maybe he died of the stabs. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe it was the stabbing in the chest that killed him. <laughs> uh, meanwhile... Buttercup gets very quickly married against her will. Yes. The ceremony is skipped ahead to man and wife. <laughs> um, and she's being escorted away by the king and the queen. And she tells the king, who cannot hear anything, <laughs> she's like, thank you for being so nice to me. I'm going to kill myself in the <laughs> bedchamber. And the king is like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> there's like, there's so many funny lines. I don't know what it is. There's so many funny lines in a row, like, building up in these, like, last few scenes that, like, I, I kept writing down. I'm like, that's a classic line. That's a classic line. That's so funny. It keeps escalating, and it keeps getting better. Uh, and Buttercup goes back to the room. She's gonna stab herself. Yes. And Wesley stops her, and he's lying on the bed. And he says, hey, nice tits. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> but uh, he's laying in bed in her room. Because he's still very weak, right? He still can't really move. Yeah. And then, of course, the prince enters. Mm-hmm. And he has his sword, and he's going to challenge Wesley and, and kill him. To the death. To the death, right? No. Then, to the pain. To the pain. <laughs> and, like, the prince is like, I I'm sorry, what? And he's like, yes, because I won't kill you. I will let you live, but only after, like, taking out your left eye and then your right eye, and then I'll cut your feet off. At the ankles, then your hands, and those that'll take five months to fix, and then I'll take uh, seven months to, to heal. And <laughs> he just goes on this, like, whole tangent about how he's going to just mutilate the prince. Mm -hmm. And I love because throughout this, like, tirade, he also keeps just insulting him. Yes. My favorite is he says, you miserable, vomitous mass. And he also says, you warhog face buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> the prince's reactions are what really sell these lines. He's almost like, ah, geez. Wincing. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, ouch. <laughs> and Wesley just keeps delivering them with like that like stone cold stare. Like there's such silly insults, but his delivery is like so perfect. So perfect. And he's obviously bluffing, but... The prince doesn't know this, and he's so terrified by what Wesley is outlining here <laughs> that he sits down and Buttercup ties him up. And I do love that in the movie, Wesley, like, stands up and holds his sword. Like, he has the strength enough to, like, do that yes. one move, which convinces the prince. I like and he, that a like, lot. grabs his cloak and, like, sits down. <laughs> I don't know. Something about him grabbing his cape behind him and, like, sitting down I mean, it's almost really like, gets me. Yeah, no, it's, very, it's a very, very funny gesture. <laughs> uh, Inigo eventually joins them and then from down below Fezzik calls to them he's grabbed some horses and they can get going they can get out of here yes they they jump down and they make their escape uh, into the night yes and they live happily ever after we get a kiss 
explained in the film in the film where it's supposedly the best kiss in the world this is actually in from the book but at the beginning after buttercup and wesley first proclaim their love to each other (laughs) the author starts to like outline and this is something else the author does a lot in the book that is so funny he speaks from this like omnipotent point of view like i like about oh um the greatest kisses of all time actually uh number five was in uh, France in this year and like I'll I'll just read it okay because <laughs> it's really good. There have been five great kisses since 1642 BC when Saul and Delilah Corn's inadvertent discovery swept across Western civilization. Before then, couples hooked thumbs, <laughs> and the precise rating of kisses is a terribly difficult thing, often leading to great controversy. Because although everyone agrees with the formula of affection times purity times intensity times duration, no one has ever been completely satisfied with how much weight each element should receive. But on any system, there are five that everyone agrees deserves full marks. Well, this one left them all behind. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the funniest part about that that I totally forgot was the line about before the invention of kissing couples hooked thumbs. Yes. I laughed out loud so hard when I read that. Like, that really got me. That line is so good. When he does a similar thing with he talks about the most beautiful women of in the world at various points in time and yeah kind of like they're almost like little asides and like little stories about <laughs> various women and how they became the most beautiful and how that disappeared or whatever their rankings their rankings <laughs> it's very funny uh i feel like that maybe even disappears a little bit as the book goes yeah but um which was kind of my favorite tone this book had at any point was like maybe at the beginning with that like omnipotent point of view that kind of jumps around and mm-hmm. it's just very funny. Yeah, we still get the the asides of like, oh, I cut this here and I cut this here. Yes. That continues throughout the whole book, but well, I agree but- there's more of like maybe S. Morgenstern in yes, the beginning. Yes, because like those parts, like what you just read are supposedly S. Morgenstern. Yeah. Whereas like the explanation of what was cut was supposedly William Goldman. Yeah, exactly. But they have this kiss, and we find out that the grandson doesn't quite mind the kissing no. anymore. He liked <laughs> the story, and he wants his grandpa to come read it to him tomorrow. Yeah, and he says, as you wish. Aww. It's very sweet. Very it's sweet. It's a great ending. <laughs> the book ends in a kind of interesting way. Yeah, the book is like they're fleeing, but then the prince is behind them, And suddenly, Wesley loses all his strength, and uh, Inigo's wound reopens, and... Fezzik took a wrong turn. Fezzik took a wrong turn, and they're about to die. And this is, like, kind of how the book ends. And this is what William Goldman claims. This is how O.S. Morgenstern ended it. Yeah, because Goldman claimed that, like, his dad always ended it, like, a paragraph before that. Yeah. Where they were just riding off and he said the end. (laughs) But when really there's this paragraph after that that sets up a more uncertain fate. Yes. Which I actually kind of like in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't know. The almost like you're like, how are they going to get out of this one? Yes. Further adventures. Yeah. And um, so... We have to talk about Buttercup's baby. Yes. Ian. Uh, you were ahead of me on the reading, <laughs> and I was already kind of behind and was worried about finishing on time. This book was way bigger than I thought it would be. And I, you were like, if your book has Buttercup's baby, because this was a later edition. It's like a 25th anniversary. Yeah. You were like, 
don't bother reading it. So I know nothing about this. I did not read this. So, I mean, and the movie doesn't touch this either. So Buttercup's Baby is the alleged sequel that S. Morgenstern wrote to The Princess Bride. And uh, William Goldman talks about how, oh, I wanted to abridge that one too, but I hadn't read it before. And he goes on this... It is so long, Ian. It's like a hundred pages almost. Yeah, it like, was a lot of the book. It's a, it's a huge chunk of the book. And honestly, it really adds nothing to yeah. the story. I mean, it's funny, but it really is just too much, in my opinion. It's where the book is going too far. And I don't know how much of this was in the original version or if it's all just the 25th anniversary edition. But he talks about how, oh, his son was inspired by Arnold Schwarzenegger and got thin. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. And like him and his son have had like a good relationship. Um, and then his son ended up having a son and they named the son uh, William Arnold after what? the grandpa and then Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger? And then he's like reading. They read The Princess Bride to the grandson. And then the grandson is like, oh, I want to know what happens next. Can you do the next one? And so then he's like, oh, I'll do it for my grandson. Um, and he talks about like, oh, you know, the whole estate of S. Morgenstern, like wouldn't let him do it because they were mad about how, uh, the princess bride went and like, there's all these different lawyers and then that lawyer dies and then his son takes over and then that lawyer died and then his daughter takes over and she like tries to seduce him. I read that (laughs) in like a description at some point about this story. And then she's like. Oh, actually, Stephen King is doing the abridgment of Buttercup's Baby. It's a whole bit. And then he goes and meets with Stephen King. And this is all fake. Oh, my God. There's a whole scene of him talking to Stephen King and Stephen King being like, oh, you should have gone to Florin and like done some research. You know, I have family in Florin. And like, that's why they want me to do the adaptation. And then he's like, finally, like, OK, I'll, why don't you do the first chapter? And then we'll see who should do it. Like, I'll give you a shot. Like, he's like, I'm going to write the (laughs) abridgment. (laughs) And William Goldman's like, oh, remember, like, when I wrote the Misery screenplay and how much you loved it? Like, you should just give this to me. Oh, God, yeah, that would have been a connection, wouldn't it? (laughs) It was just so crazy. And it kept going. And then they finally get to the abridgment of Buttercup's baby. And it's like... Oh, the baby is being thrown off a cliff and Fezzik like jumps after her to try to catch the baby. And then like it goes back in time to when they're being chased in the forest. And like there's this whole part where uh, allegedly S. Morgenstern has a whole bit about the trees of Florin. And (laughs) William Goldman talks about cutting that. And then they go to like this island where there's a whirlpool and then... Buttercup has trouble delivering her baby and Fezzik gets invaded by a spirit and he is able to has the power to like do a C-section on this island with like no tools. Yes, Ian. Yes. And that's and then it like just ends. Is it self is it like acknowledging how crazy it is? Is it like, oh, S. Morgenstern really went off the deep end with this? Well, the whole time he's like, this is very different from The Princess Bride. Like it's jumping around in time and like the different perspectives. And I'm not quite sure what he's going, (laughs) like what he has going on here. Because there could be so many levels to it. Like is it intentionally absurd or? I think it's too far. Yeah. I, I mean, it just makes it so ridiculous. And the whole thing with the baby, like. I don't know. Well, and I even began reading because there are different introductions that were in my book. My book was the 30th anniversary. 
and there was a introduction for the 30th anniversary edition, but then he included an introduction he wrote for the 25th anniversary yep. edition. So there were two introductions and the 30th one discussed like the making of the movie. Mm-hmm. And he even relates to a real story that happened where when Buttercup's dress catches on fire in the fire swamp, apparently when Goldman was on set, even though he knew it was going to happen, he panicked and shouted her dresses on fire and he like <laughs> ruined the take. <laughs> Which I read about and is true, and he refers to that. But injecting then he, true facts. Yes, in. once again, injecting their like real stuff into this. Like, but then he's also talking about like, oh, I went with my grandson to the S. Morgenstern uh, Museum in Florin, <laughs> and like, but then I was like. All right, I'm I'm starting to lose it a bit here. Yeah, because he talked about meeting Andre the Giant and how kind he was, and like. You know, there's elements of it that are interesting, but then you're also like, well, I know that this is kind of fake, too. Yeah, like, the whole intro to Buttercup's Baby was just so long. Yeah. Like, with the whole, like, this is what happened with me and my son, and then I had a grandson, and then, like, the lawyer thing, and then the Stephen King thing. Like, it just got too much. Yeah, and I think there's something to say for, like, I think the level of kind of absurdity to it in the pre-existing original book Especially, like, the writing in yes. to get, like, the extra pages and then getting <laughs> that letter about lawyers back is, like, super funny and, like, over yeah, the top. Yeah, but that's, like, enough, right? Yes, but now you're heaping on more mythology to it. And, like, it seems like he's just heaping on more fake background mythology to the point where it's, like, starting to outweigh the actual original, original novel. Story. Yeah, and you're starting to, like, lose the purpose of the whole thing and for me i think it made the ending of the book not very enjoyable because it was really tedious and boring i wouldn't have wanted to read that after but i I mean i didn't have to right it was like i think only in the 25th anniversary edition well but like the way my book was laid out like it kind of made it seem like it was almost just a continuation yeah like i probably would have kept reading it thinking like oh maybe this is the book but then it would have been like well maybe it's not but i'll keep reading it like I probably would have fizzled out and stopped read. And that's like such a shitty way to end. I know. Yeah. I think this is naturally leading us into a discussion of which we prefer. Yes, it is. <laughs> and why don't you? I, I'm going to be kind enough to let you go first. Well, I mean, I prefer the movie. Yeah. I think the book is hilarious and mm-hmm. great, but I do think it can get carried away. And I think William Goldman was having a great time when he wrote it, but maybe he was patting himself a little too hard on the back in certain (laughs) moments, right? He was just going a little far. I also don't really love that Buttercup in the book is kind of portrayed as like a dumb blonde. Yeah. Like she's very like, he talks about her not being long on like imagination and- Or like very good at math or- Yeah. yeah. And, And it's just like, okay, like it's fine, but I don't know. With that on top of like- it going on too long, some of the bits being a little tedious. Um, I just think the movie really takes all the good stuff <laughs> from the book. <laughs> yeah. All the good parts. The book was just the good bits of S. Morgan Stern, and the film is just the good bits of those good bits. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, the performances, everybody in this movie yeah. is doing amazing. And it has really great pacing. Yeah. Like, it just moves really well. And I know I complained about a couple moments in the film, but they are so completely outweighed by all the good in yes, this movie. Yes, very true. Yeah, no, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, I mean, I think the parts of the book that I really liked 
that are unique to the book are really good. Like the writing is so funny, especially in those early chapters. And I do find his kind of like meta commentary about how he abridged this like fictional book and like the ridiculousness of uh, mailing in for those extra pages. And uh, there's something like really funny and interesting and over the top about that that I like. I agree that at points it maybe feels like the author's having like too much fun with that or like patting himself on the back a bit too much. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But those, it's still really made for a unique story and I can see how they, and I mean so much of the movie, so much of the movie comes straight from the book. I know. And William Goldman wrote the screenplay. Yeah. But like the funny thing is he almost wrote, it's like you said, he almost wrote the book understanding what would make for a good joke in a film but those jokes don't always read as well in the book. Mm-hmm. Like the one line that killed me in the film was they approach the guard for the gate key and he won't give it to them. And then he goes, Fezzik, tear his arms off. <laughs> oh, you mean this gate key? <laughs> <laughs> like the pacing and delivery that is so good. And those lines are verbatim in the book, but like they're not that. I mean, they're they're funny, but like not yeah, as laugh out loud. Yeah. Whereas like the writing in the book that was like, you know, that portion you read about all time kisses. Yeah. And like couples used to hook thumbs <laughs> like that kills me. And that's so so it's almost like the humor that's unique to the book is laugh out loud and great. Yeah. And the humor of the film, even though it came from the book, it's not as funny in the book, but works so well in the film. Yeah. So it's just such an interesting combination. Yeah. And look at adaptation. Right. Especially yeah. when you like you said, Goldman wrote both the book and the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean. They're a great combination. I would just say, like, don't read Buttercup's Baby. It's not worth it. Yeah. Like, there's some funny jokes in there, but ultimately I think it takes away from the original story. But, yeah, I mean, the book's really good, really funny, really enjoyable. But, I mean, the movie just hits, right? It does. The movie is just, ah, you can put it on any time. So I think it's going to be movie for both of us. Yes, yes, it's a movie from both of us. Let's um, read Robert's thoughts on this book-a-movie combo, our patron. So Robert says... The Princess Bride has been a favorite movie of mine since I was a young kid, when it was a staple in my family. The characters, humor, action, and dialogue have stuck with me ever since. I read the book years later, and although I enjoyed it, it was impossible to get the movie out of my mind. Ultimately, this movie, to me, is perfect. From the opening moment of Fred Savage playing 80s-era video games, (laughs) to Peter Falk's final As You Wish, every performance is iconic. The screenplay is full of some of the most quotable lines in movie history— The production stories are legendary, and more than 30 years later, the movie endures as one of the best movies of all time. Thank you for giving this the full cover to credits treatment. Adina and Ian, I can't wait to hear what you both have to say about a movie that feels like it was made for this podcast. (laughs) A book being read in a movie that is adapted before our eyes. Love your podcast. I'm proud to be a patron and have fun storming the castle. <laughs> That's great. That's a great write-up, Robert. Yes, thank you so much for that. <laughs> and uh, I hope you uh, were satisfied with our analysis of, of book and movie. We we really are fans of, of both. For yeah, sure. and it was so much fun to do it. Yes. I mean, you're not going to have a bad time either reading this book or watching the movie. No, and if you're a fan of the movie, I think you'd get a lot of enjoyment out of the book, too. For sure. Yeah. Should we do a lightning round? Yeah, let's do lightning. So first up for lightning round, I just want to mention the scene in the movie where the prince has his like captain of the guard come in and he's like, I need you to empty the thieves quarter and like guard the castle and blah, blah, blah. And like, 
he waves him over and this guy comes over and like kneels down next to the prince's chair, puts his arm on the prince's chair's armrest. And the prince just looks at the arm. He takes his arm off and then the prince puts his arm on the armrest. And like, as I'm describing it, it doesn't sound funny, but I cannot explain to you how much I laughed at this moment in the movie. Like, it was just so funny to me for him just like looking at him yeah, and him like removing his arm and being like... <laughs> well, I didn't write it down, but the actor who plays the and this character's name is Yeller mm-hmm. in uh, the book. I don't know if he's given a name in the film. He has that moment and then the line later about like, oh, you mean this gatekeeper? Yeah. He has like two lines in the whole film, but they're two of the funniest lines. So I think like as a comedic actor, he really delivers like a subtle but very funny delivery on yeah, lines. Yeah, just solidifying that like everyone in this movie is doing the best. Yes. You know. Top tier. <laughs> Uh, I will get my kind of bad one out of the way first. We talked earlier about how Goldman, his fictionalized version in this book, has a son. And he describes his son as fat, right? Yeah. Which was, like, very annoying. He talked about it multiple times. He has the whole, like, oh, he waddled over here or there. Like, just, oh, my God. I, I am so sick of fat phobia, like, in older books. Then there's a part later That might be like one of the worst things I've ever read in my life because he's going on a spree and this is Goldman writing like an insert in the story. This book says life isn't fair and I'm telling you once and for all, you better believe it. I got a fat, spoiled son. He's not going to nab Miss Reginald and he's always going to be fat. Even if he gets skinny, he'll still be fat and he'll still be spoiled and life will never be enough to make him happy. And that's my fault, maybe. Yeah. And then he just continues his tirade about life not being fair. I've got a fat son. And he's always going to be fat, even if he gets skinny. I'm like, what kind of fucked up logic are you even doing here? Why are you abusing this son that does not even exist? And also, like, the, the wife in the book mentions, like, oh, he's still really young. Yeah. And, like, if he decides to be skinny, if that's what he wants, like, the the wife is arguing very logically about it in the book. And I don't know if we're supposed to think she's being ridiculous. I don't know. But like, I read that and I'm like, that is one of like the worst things I've ever read in my life. Yeah, the book does have that (laughs) that going on, unfortunately. (laughs) And I have no idea how to interpret him making his son skinny later. Yeah. Inspired by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know. It's all a joke to him and I don't think it's funny. It's not. Yeah. Uh, next from the book, I want to mention this little interlude where Prince Humperdinck actually tries to woo a neighboring princess from Gilder, Princess Marina. And there's this part where, uh, William Goldman is talking about all the parts that he cut from Princess Norina visiting. So he says, uh, just as the chapters on whaling in Moby Dick can be omitted by all the by all but the most punishment-loving readers. So the packing scenes that Morgan Stern details here are really best left alone. That's what happens over the next 56 and a half pages of The Princess Bride. Packing. I include unpacking scenes in the same category. What happens is just this. Queen Bella packs most of her wardrobe, 11 pages, and travels to Gilder, 2 pages. In Gilder, she unpacks, 5 pages, then tenders the invitation to Princess Norina, 1 page. Princess Norina accepts, 1 page. Then Princess Norina packs all of her clothes and hats, 23 pages, and together the princess and the queen travel back to Florin for the annual celebration for the founding of Florin City, 1 page. 
And like, <laughs> this is so funny to me to imagine. And then he talks and then the, the story goes on and Princess Norina is visiting and he, they talk about how many hats she has. And how yes. she's always changing her hats only for it to be revealed during a scene of a very gusty wind that she's completely bald. <laughs> Thus totally de- derailing the marriage p- potential between her and the prince. Well, and it's written so kind of like confusingly at first because her hat flies off her head and the prince kind of storms off. (laughs) And you're like, what happened? And then the mother is like, son, it doesn't matter that she's bald. Yeah. And he's like, no, no wife of mine is going to be bald. Uh, Just very funny. I see why they cut it in the movie. It was not very relevant to the story, but just like a very funny part. No, that was really good. Uh, For my last lightning round, I'll go to something that's that's good and funny and interesting. Uh, apparently, Carrie Elwes, who played Wesley, and Robin Wright, uh, who played Buttercup, were very smitten with each other. Really? As I've read. They were very into each other, it seemed. <laughs> they were boning. Carrie Elwes said that, like, when Robin Wright, when he first met her after that moment, it was very hard to focus in <laughs> scenes with her when she was around. And apparently, when their final kissing scene uh, Robin Wright kept asking for more takes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love this for this movie. Yeah. I love the idea that, like, I, I have no idea what their relationship status was when they made it. Like, maybe they didn't bone. I don't know. But I like <laughs> the very strong possibility that they were. Yeah. That's really Just funny. for the mythology of the making of this movie. Yes. Which, by the way, they're both great in it. I don't think we mentioned them because we were talking about all the side uh, yeah. characters. No, but they're they, good. They're fantastic. Uh, Carrie Elwes, like, uh, he's like very dashing, but very funny. You know, he went on to play Robin Hood <laughs> in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh, wow. Which was a Mel Brooks film, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking about that type of humor in this movie, and it makes sense that he would go on to that, that's really star funny. in one of those. Uh, yeah, he's fantastic, and Robin Wright's great. Uh, I'm sure I know that like this movie is beloved and there are 10,000 stories about the making of it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that we did not cover <laughs> probably half of them, but that's not this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we did have fun, though, talking about the book and comparing it to the movie and just enjoying that process and talking about William Goldman and the role of the author and the screenplay writer, the uh, adapter in all of this. So thank you so much for listening. Also, shout out to Robert, our patron, for requesting this episode. As always, if you'd like to support us, you can do that on Patreon. And if you'd like us to do an episode, um, we do all our patron-suggested episodes. So that's a good way to get your episode made. Yes. Uh, If you become a patron, you also gain access to all of our bonus episodes. We have over 50 at this point. Uh, sometimes they're tie-ins to main episodes if there's other adaptations. Sometimes we just want to talk about Star Wars, you yeah. know? <laughs> uh, so there's tons of episodes for you to listen to that you have access to all of them at any Patreon tier, as well as access to our Discord and monthly schedules. So if any of that sounds interesting, join our Patreon. You can also join us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. All those links are at CoverToCredits.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.